It's Thursday, March 18th. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. The fear among Asian Americans is real. We have been seeing an uptick in anti-Asian racist incidents, and according to one report, there were over 3,800 incidents this past year during the pandemic, mostly against women. These can include everything from shunning people, using slurs, or even physical attacks. Experts see two trends emerging. One is incidents of racism related to the pandemic, and the second is violence against elderly Asians. Kimmy Yam, reporter at NBC News and writer for NBC Asian America, joins us for more. Next, the fight for his political life has officially begun for California Governor Gavin Newsom. On Wednesday, proponents of a recall effort submitted over 2 million signatures to be verified. Only 1.5 million signatures are needed. Newsom has already begun a press tour to defend his handling of the state's pandemic response, and it's time to get ready for more ads flooding the state. Newsom is pinning the recall effort on Trump supporters and opportunists, while the other side wants to keep it all about Newsom's closures of businesses. David Siders, national political reporter at Politico, joins us for what to expect next in this recall. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. Either which way, uh, this is a crime that occurred against Asian American women. And I think precisely because of that, um, the Asian American community uh, needs to be up in arms and do everything that we can to protect members of our community. Joining us now is Kimmy Yam, reporter at NBC News who writes for the NBC Asian America section. Thanks for joining us, Kimmy. Thank you so much for having me. I wanted to talk about some new data we've seen about hate incidents against Asian Americans and Asians in the country. We've been hearing about this for some time, but this new report basically says that there were about 3,800 anti-Asian racist incidents, mostly against women also, just this past year. So, Kimmy, tell us what we're seeing out of this report. My piece specifically does highlight the ways in which women are disproportionately targeted in these attacks, but it's actually something that we've seen track for quite some time. Stop AAPI Hate released this report, and it looked at incidents over the past year under the pandemic, but they released another report last year that examined roughly five months under the pandemic, and it actually came out with a similar proportion of attacks targeting women versus men. And it panned out to be around women reporting at 2.3 times more than men. And I think when looking at the data first glance, I think that it's it's pretty jarring because it's up a thousand incidents more than last year. But really what we're seeing is a lot of underreporting in the community. I think that that hasn't quite been emphasized enough. Experts have long noted that there are a ton of barriers that keep Asian Americans from reporting. It could be language barriers. It could be lack of awareness around the resources available to them. Fear of retaliation is also a huge one. When a lot of these hate incidents started getting attention, I think that it really galvanized the community to really speak out about it. And then it created for an environment that allowed for more people to report. And so a lot of the incidents, you know, that were 2020 incidents were actually retroactively reported in 2021. And that's an important thing to note here from this report. I think they made clear too, you know, these aren't necessarily just hate crimes. These are hate incidents because it it includes many more things. So 
It can include slurs, physical attacks, shunning of people. So it's not just physical crimes, things like that. But why do they think that women are targeted more? From the article, it says they're just easier targets. Maybe they're perceived as weaker or something. This is why Mm -hmm. they're being targeted more? Asian American women have always dealt with a specific type of racialized sexism. I think that when we think about Asian women just in the stereotypes attached to them, it's often that they're meek or subservient. I think that it's created kind of this idea that men can overpower, easily overpower Asian women. And so this issue of public safety is actually really not unique to the pandemic. One thing that Dr. Russell Jung mentioned to me when I was interviewing him for this piece is that these are issues that we've seen for so long and that they've kind of flown under the radar. The thing is that because of the pandemic and the way in which there's been a lot of anti-Asian rhetoric in referencing what this is, like that China virus language and a lot of that incendiary rhetoric, people have used this kind of as an excuse to attack Asian women. And it's attacking in kind of a different way. So, you know, it's a really longstanding issue, even, you know, I mean, it dates back till to when Asian women were allowed in this country. And so to say that this is like a new occurrence would be completely false. And I I do think that in a lot of ways, what we're seeing in the Asian American community, a lot of the violence and a lot of the pain definitely exacerbated during the pandemic, but not unique to the pandemic, for sure. One of the other interesting things in this report is is where these incidences were happening. Verbal harassment, shunning, those were the most common types. But a lot of this, more than a third of it, was happening at businesses. And, and, you know, we know that there's a lot of Asian Americans that own a lot of business. So this is happening at their places of business, places where they feel safe. And that kind of reverberates throughout the community from what I'm understanding here is that people are scared. They just don't know when something is going to happen out of nowhere. I think that there are a ton of different factors impacting the community right now. Um, I think that we've been seeing a lot of violence toward our elders, and that's kind of a separate trend, but also a really horrible trend that we've been seeing during the pandemic. We've been seeing, you know, this rise in hate incidents and also rise in hate crimes. A separate report did mention that there had been a surge of 150 percent and hate crimes in the major cities in the U.S., primarily looking at New York and L.A. There have been particularly significant rises there. But we're seeing kind of these two trends rise together, and it's created such a fear in the Asian American community, and it's so real. And certainly the events that transpired last night are definitely not going to help ease any of those tensions or fears that we've been feeling since the very start of this pandemic. And just very briefly, you're referring to this shootings that were happening in Atlanta at a a few different spas. There was eight people total that were killed. I believe six of them were uh, of Asian uh, descent. So there's a lot that goes into that. He said it was for other reasons, not racially motivated, but that still doesn't quell the fears that people have in the community. The last question I have briefly is, you know, you mentioned attacks on elders in the community. Do we have a sense of why maybe they were being targeted? A lot of those incidents, they are horrible and graphic, and I think that's why they've been getting quite a bit of attention. Even Dr. Jung mentioned that it is a primary reason why I think more people are reporting is because we're seeing something so graphic in front of us. 
And so more people find it important to do so. But it doesn't necessarily mean it's a hate crime. A lot of these things are have not thus far been found to be racially motivated. However, race could very well play into it. And I think a lot of experts have noted that elders could be racially profiled and seen as weaker or more lucrative targets, softer targets. And also, you know, there's a confluence of a lot of factors happening right now. A lot of people have different reactions to economic deprivation, and there's also opportunity could really play into it. And so a lot of these factors, plus this pandemic that's going on that has made poverty in a lot of these very poor and low-income neighborhoods much worse. And so, you know, in that context, there's a lot going on. It's difficult to pin it to just, oh, it's just the anti-Asian racism as it relates to the pandemic. I think experts say that there's a lot more that's going on and we should be careful to not kind of chalk it up to one simplistic explanation. We know that the administration, the Biden administration, has tried to address some of this. I know there's lawmakers throughout the country that are trying to address this. What have we seen on that front? Biden has addressed the violence in his first national primetime address. He also signed a memorandum earlier this year, and that really issued guidance on how the DOJ would respond to a lot of these bias incidents. We've also seen the reintroduction of some hate crime legislation by Representative Grace Meng and Senator Maisie Hirano. And I think experts are really looking at what tangible solutions these could bring. I know that Dr. Jung mentioned that one of the primary concerns that he has is just a lot of the focus is on hate crimes. And that actually covers a very small sliver of what's going on in the Asian American community. For something to be elevated to a hate crime, it has to be fairly serious. And it has to be confirmed that it's racially motivated. Whereas racism, as it pertains to Asian Americans, in order to mitigate that, that's going to take a much more holistic approach. And so they're really advocating for more education around Asian Americans and Asian American history and racial studies, civil rights protections and restorative justice models so that the root of the problem isn't further replicated. But for now, I think that many of them stress that there's a lot more work to be done because as we've been seeing, I think there are a complexity of factors that are are folded into what is what Asian Americans are dealing with this whole year. And so it's it is a little bit complicated, but there are lawmakers who are speaking out about this is just what really sticks at this point. Kimmy Yam, reporter for NBC News and writer for NBC Asian America. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you so much. You know, the reality at the end of the day in California, it's the easiest state in America to put a recall petition on the ballot. There are 19 states where you can do it. Uh, All you need is about a quarter of the people that just supported Trump to sign a petition. And it appears that they've done that in this state. As you noted, this is the sixth recall attempt since I've been governor. And by the way, I've only been governor 25 months. Joining us now is David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thanks for joining us, David. Hey, good to be here. Well, it seems like the fight is officially on for California Governor Gavin Newsom on Wednesday. That was the deadline for uh, uh, proponents of his recall effort to submit their signatures. They needed 1.5 million. 
I think they were submitting somewhere in the area of two million. So after they go through the process of verifying them, it seems like they'll have enough signatures to get the recall to qualify on the ballot. And we've already seen Governor Newsom kind of doing some press rounds, trying to defend his handling of the pandemic response. I mean, there's a lot that goes into this. So, David, what are we seeing? What can we expect? Well, I think you you had the the most important point there just right, which is that, that for a long time, this recall initiative, you know, they come up all the time in California. People circulate petitions to recall officials, and it just doesn't happen because it's really hard to get that number of signatures. But even Newsom's team acknowledges it seems all but certain that this election will qualify. And so, yeah, we're going to have a bonanza on our hands here for the next few months. You mentioned how recall efforts pop up all the time. I I saw him, I I believe it was on CNN. It might have been one of his other hits because he's been doing a few. You know, he made mention specifically, this is the sixth time that they've tried to recall me in my like 25 months or so in office. So first off, I mean, (laughs) there's a a concerted effort to get him out, out of office, but also things were different this time. What changed? Obviously, I know the handling of the pandemic was a big thing, but, you know, there's a lot of different things that his opponents are going to use as ammo against him. I mean, it's a weird talking point, right, to tell people how many times folks have wanted to recall you. But it it is right that this is the sixth uh, attempt. I I guess the biggest thing that's different is that there was a time extension. So one of the reasons it's so hard to qualify an initiative is because you only have a a 160-day window to gather signatures. And because of the pandemic, this group of signature gatherers convinced a judge to give them an extra 120 days. So that happened in November, and that, that was the month, really, that this campaign blossomed because they got that extension. That meant big donors got excited, and so there was a paid operation to supplement, a uh, paid signature gathering operation to supplement the volunteer drive. And that was also the month that Newsom decided to go to the French Laundry, that Tony restaurant where he was photographed at a non-socially distanced event while also telling people not to gather for the holidays. So really, that was kind of the month this came together. And you couple that with, uh, as I mentioned before, you know, the pretty strict closures for businesses and churches. You know, I live in Los Angeles and I saw firsthand kind of the outrage that happened when those extensions were made. You know, restaurants had already been able to open back up a little bit and then they took it all away. And man, I saw that really heat up at that moment. People were just really frustrated because you know, their livelihoods were at stake now even more than ever. The health thing had already happened, but now they are losing businesses, you know, so it was really tough for them. So what is the strategy going to be for Gavin Newsom and his team? I know he's building that team up right now, and we're just going to be seeing, you know, a big ad blitz, television, radio, TV. He's, he's going to be all over the place. But what, how do they sell him? How does he, you know, make his case for staying in office? Well, he will do all of that. And I think that they will spend a lot of money and he will be all over the place. But I think that how he mostly makes the case is he just waits. And I think there's broad consensus that the electorate in California, first of all, the mood is not as dire as it was in 2003, for example. Uh, Newsom's disapproval ratings are nowhere near as close to what Gray Davis's were. And I think it's reasonable to assume that By the time this election is held, October, November, December, whenever that is, that more people will be vaccinated, caseloads will be down even from where they are today, and probably people will be in a better better mood, and that helps the incumbent. So, And the other thing that he banks on is that you look at the electorate in California, it's 24% Republican. So it's not impossible 
that the election goes against Newsom and that he gets recalled. But it will require just about everything going right for Republicans for that to happen. Yeah, I mean, he's really going to be fighting two wars, right? One, the recall effort, and then two, the pandemic and making sure all of that gets back in order and the economy gets roaring again, as you mentioned, so that hopefully in voters' minds, they say, hey, well, maybe it wasn't so bad after all. What about the proponents of the recall? How do they feel about the effort? I'm sure they feel good because it looks like they have enough signatures, but how do they feel about their prospects throughout this? Well, they've been pretty uh, bullish on their prospects the whole way. And those people deserve a lot of credit. It's, It's remarkable what they've done to collect that many signatures at a fairly inexpensive rate. You know, they didn't have a lot of money. The lead proponents were not terribly well-known figures in California politics. And so they're clearly excited about this thing. And I think what, you know, now establishment Republicans looking at this are seeing is they have to hope that they don't have a hugely divided GOP ticket. They can't have six, seven, eight really well-known Republicans beating each other up. And they have to push back against Newsom's effort to frame this as a, a Trump campaign, because if this campaign becomes Gavin Newsom versus Trump again, well, Trump lost by what, 30 percent or something, uh, percentage points rather in, in November. I mean, that's not a good place for Republicans to be. If the recall effort is successful, you know, we already have a couple of Republican candidates who've thrown their hat in the ring. What about the Democratic side? Has anybody stepped up as a possible contender? I know, I know everybody's, you know, uh, backing uh, Newsom. So for somebody to step out now would be a little weird. But, but yeah, has there been buzz about anybody? The buzz is about whether there should be anybody. And probably a Democrat will be on that ballot. Probably more than 100 people will be on that ballot. It's, it's ridiculously easy to qualify. The question strategically is, is it better to have a fallback option on the second question? And the, what you have to weigh there is that if there is a Democrat, because, because the recall is two questions, right? It's do you want to recall the governor? And then if a majority says they want to recall the governor, it's who do you want instead? So if Democrats all get behind Newsom and nobody is on that second ballot, it probably helps Newsom on that first ballot. But if it doesn't work and voters vote to recall Newsom and there's not a Democrat waiting on the second ballot, that can be a problem too. So that's that's a, uh, a tricky thing, I think, for, for Democrats to figure out. It's going to be an interesting time. All eyes are going to be on California across the country. California is going to be inundated with money, ad money. There's no other statewide elections except for Virginia and New Jersey. So the recall of a governor of this, you know, the the biggest state here is going to be it's going to be intense. And, And that money talk a little bit about that money that's going to be poured in on this. I think on the Newsom side, they said that he he might spend a hundred million dollars, and you know who knows what would happen on the recall effort side. Yeah, I mean, just look at what has been spent in other high-profile races the last few years, and take California with its much bigger size and massive media markets. You have to spend a ton of money, so I would expect Democrats to spend a lot, and that's interesting because it's, even if Newsom survives, it's at least a concern to some Republicans about what that means for him politically. And for Democrats, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to form new alliances with him, to maybe repair relationships that have frayed or not as strong as they might otherwise be. Spending in campaigns is more than just, its effects tend to last longer than just the ultimate result. David Siders, national political correspondent at Politico. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at 
Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcast. This episode of The Daily Dive is produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive.